Good morning, friends. How are you? Sava? Yes, yes. Oh. <laughs> I'm going right into it today. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, well, um, for those who I have not met, my name is Charlie Salamone, lead pastor here at OSU Bible Church. And uh, we've been doing a series on the book of John, and today is exciting for me. It's a very special portion of scripture we're going to be talking about. It's actually my favorite portion of scripture. If I have to pick one, if you make me pick one portion, it's right here. So, uh, but to begin, rewind a little bit. Uh, I have mentioned recently that uh, uh, my wife and I began leading a group for young adults at our church. I am actually not a young adult, but they think that I am. So keep that secret. Uh, but anyways, um, this week I began the conversation with the young adults by asking anyone if they had experienced God this week. Anyone experienced God this week? And uh, this young man who has been uh, part of our group lately, who this is all new to him, okay, the whole, uh, everything about Christianity is new to him. He's just learning and really considering uh, what this is all about. He asked, how does someone experience God? Which is a really good question, isn't it? Is God, can God be experienced by us? Meaning, can this be more than religious dogma? Uh, can this be more than religious traditions? Can God be experienced? Well, I would hope that we could answer that question, not only can God be experienced, but the question of how can we experience God? So like I said, uh, John, what, what we're doing, we're, we're just keep that, keep that in your mind. How can we experience God? Here we are, uh, we have made it to John chapter 14. And I'll explain to you what we're getting into. So the next three chapters, John 14, 15, and 16, they make up uh, what is known as the final discourse, um, which is the sermon, if you want to call it a sermon, the message that Jesus gave his disciples before he went to the cross. So you can understand why this would be considered a really important important section of scripture, right? This is what Jesus said to his disciples before he left. So this is going to be really, really important. Now, we're going to be here for six weeks. We're going to be looking at these, these chapters for six weeks, and we're going to do what we often do, just kind of walk through it, you know, a piece at a time, a half a chapter here, half a chapter there. But today, instead of doing that, I'm going to just offer a little bit of commentary on 
the final discourse of these three chapters as a whole, specifically in regards to why these chapters are so personal for me, why I call these my, my favorite, why I call this my favorite portion of scripture. If you hang out with me, you've heard this story before, um, and I hope you all will continue to hang out with me, and for that reason, you're going to hear this story multiple times uh, over the years. It's going to come up. Because it's very personal, it was very, it changed my life. Um, and it's very much pertaining to the question that my friend asked on Wednesday, how can someone experience God? All right, um, I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive into, uh, into all of this. Jesus, you have told us that you will surely give us whatever we ask in your name, according to your mission. And Lord, we know it is your desire to make yourself known, to hallow your name, to show yourself, Lord. So allow my words to be used by you to show yourself to be alive, to show yourself to be good, to show yourself to be here, present, by the power of the Holy Spirit whom you've given and in accordance with your promise to give us all things that we ask in your name, let us see you today here. Ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay. So let's rewind um, even farther. Let's, for me, let's go back 16 years. 16 years. 16 years ago, I began the exciting and lucrative career as a stay-at-home dad. And not only was I a stay-at-home dad, for my two little girls, I also provided daddy daycare for my friend's two little girls. So I uh, single-handedly was watching all day four girls under the age of five. Yeah. Uh, je n'étais pas bon <laughs> du tout. I was not good at it at all. Okay. Du tout. At all. I wasn't good at all. But that is where the Lord had me at that time in life. Sometimes he does this. Sometimes he puts you in a place where your giftings, your skills are not lined up with your responsibilities. That happens sometimes for his reasons, for his purposes. And that's where I was. And at the same time, while I was a stay-at-home dad, is when I began to feel the stirrings of what felt to me like a calling from God to do ministry. And I didn't even totally know what that meant, but I knew 
that it was a feeling of ministry that would reach people who are far from God to bring the gospel to people who aren't hearing the gospel, uh, to bring the gospel to people like myself who thought that Christianity wasn't something for them, to help them understand, no, this Jesus is for you. I began to feel these stirrings, and I tried to do various things. I tried starting different ministries, and all of them failed. Like one after the other, they failed. Walls would go up. Everything I would try to do would just be, I would fall on my face. And it was so hard, and it didn't help the fact that I had a pastor at the time who I greatly respected, and he told me, you're not a leader. Like he, he told me, you're not a leader, and in not so many words, told me that these things in your imagination aren't from God, and, you know, young man, you should probably just, just go back to doing whatever it is you're doing, and so that was very hard, and like I say, the, the continual failures that I experienced were all very hard. Sometimes uh, God puts you in these places of hardship for good reason. Uh, here's a passage that I quote all the time as a pastor when I'm sitting down with someone who's going through a hard time. It comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction, the hardship that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. But this happened so that we would not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. In other words, I don't want you to not know about this great pain that we experienced and the reason we experienced it was to make us rely on God and not rely on ourselves. Didn't we talk about that last week? Isn't that what our friend Peter had to go through? The story started with Peter feeling secure and relying on himself, and the story ended with Peter humble and relying on God and relying on his spirit. And I told you last week that this is the posture in which we must stand if we want to experience the power of God. There's a posture that says, Lord, I need you. Lord, I am weak. Lord, you are strong. Lord, I'm a failure in myself. Lord, but your goodness and your promises are real. Lord, I need you. That is the posture which we must, must stand in, or, or better put, kneel in, if we want to experience the power of God. And so here was I, feeling very much confused, very much feeling like, Lord, am I losing my mind? I feel like you're calling me, but I also feel and see that all I'm experiencing is failures and not knowing what is going on. And so as I sought God, I did what I would recommend all of you to do if you were in a place of seeking God. I opened the Bible and I read it. And it's one thing to read the Bible. Anyone can read a book. It's a different entirely thing to read the Bible as your heart is seeking him. 
Read the Bible as you are saying, Lord, show me your truth. Lord, where are you? Lord, where are you? And at this time, I happened upon John chapter 14 through John chapter 16, the final discourse which we're talking about today. I happened upon it, and my life was forever changed because I discovered what I call the great discovery of my life. John chapter 14 through John chapter 16. I was reading it, and, uh, well... I came across in John chapter 14, in the beginning of the final discourse that Jesus gave, I came across verse 13 and 14, and I'll read it here. Jesus says this, And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. And I came across that, and, well... These verses, this thing that Jesus just repeated here, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. He, he's repeating himself. This is something that I was familiar with because if you read the Bible, which I had done many times at that point in my life, if you read the Bible, this is actually all over the place. This uh, different versions of Jesus saying or the scripture saying something to the tune of ask and receive. Ask and receive, um, it's in uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's in uh, the letter that James wrote. It's in John's first letter. It's in a lot of places, ask and receive, ask and receive. But what struck me on this particular occasion is how Jesus said it in verse 13 and then said it again and repeated himself again in verse 14. And, you know, I started to think, why do people repeat themselves? Why do people repeat themselves? It's a point you really need to get across, in other words. Sometimes you repeat yourself if you think that maybe you weren't heard the first time. Or maybe the first time it didn't actually get communicated in the way that it needs to get communicated. So you say it again because it's really important that you grasp this. Whatever you ask my name shall have. Did you hear that? It's very important that you hear that. Whatever you ask my name, you shall have. And so I took note of this, but I didn't know what to do with it. I, I was starting to see, okay, I think this is important, but I don't know totally what to do with it. It's kind of like someone gives you a gift, and you know that it's expensive, and you know that it's special, but you don't really know what to do with it, and you don't even know where to keep it. You don't even know where to put it. And so here are these promises, whatever you ask my name, you shall have, and it's like, I don't know what to do with that. That's something that sounds very lofty. I don't know what to do with it. So I kept reading. I kept reading the final discourse. And you get to the next chapter. Verse 7, Jesus says, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. There it is a third time. There it is a third time in the same sermon, in the same message of Jesus. He said it three times to his disciples. Whatever you wish. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, whatever you wish. Whatever you ask and receive, whatever you wish. And so these are just bouncing in my head. I don't know what to do with it, so I just keep reading. So I just keep reading the final discourse. Later in John 15, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Four times, whatever you ask in my name, you're going to get. Whatever you ask 
in my name, you're going to get four times. Four times. That's something. Huh. Four times. I'm just going to keep reading. I don't know what else to do. I get to the next chapter, the same message, the same sermon that Jesus gave. You get to verse 23 and 24, and he says, And that day you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Ask and receive in verse 23. Ask and receive in verse 24. That's two more times. That's six times. That's six times in one message. Six times Jesus said something. He's about to leave. It's his final discourse, his last chance to talk to his disciples in this meaningful way, and there's something he decides to say six times. And here I was. I've been a Christian now for, for a few years. I'd listened to probably at least 100 or maybe even 200 sermons at this point. Read a bunch of Christian books. But my analysis was there's not a lot of people talking about this. Because I've been a Christian this long and no one has ever instructed me on what to do with these verses. To Jesus, it seems like it's pretty important. If he's going to say it six times, what he's trying to say is, this is something you need to get through your heads. This isn't just a, a random piece of theology or a random scripture that you can just leave alone. No, this is something you need to hear. This is something you need to grasp. This is something you need to apply. And I'd been a Christian, and no one ever gave me any instruction on what to do with this. I had, on the other hand, heard not to do with it. I was, uh, what I mean is... As I looked at, at, at this idea, whatever you ask in my name, you shall have. Whatever you ask in my name, you shall have. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. You can ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And, and if I talk to anyone about this, usually what I would hear is what the verse doesn't mean. People are really good about talking about what this verse doesn't mean. Okay, It doesn't mean that you can have whatever you want. Well, what do you mean? It doesn't mean that you can just ask for waterfront property and boom, waterfront property. You can't just ask for a Lamborghini, boom, Lamborghini. It's not that, okay? Okay, fine. Granted, that's probably true. Otherwise, all Christians would have, you know, Lambos and, and beachfront property and such. It doesn't mean that. Okay. But what does it mean? Because it's seemingly very important to the Lord that we understand what it means. Okay. Did he say we can have anything? No. There's a little bit of a qualifier there, isn't it? He said we can have whatever we ask in his name. And I know that I don't need to tell you that in his name doesn't mean that you just pray for whatever you want and then tack in your name Jesus at the end of it. Okay. I know that we, we already know that it doesn't mean that. Right? Okay. In your name is not like magic words that changes everything. What does it mean when Jesus says, I'll give you whatever you ask in my name, in my name, in my name? Uh, someone at our uh, young adult group, she, she said this in, in a really great way as I was saying, what do you think it means? She said, it means whatever you ask um, in his, on his behalf. Whatever you ask on his behalf. Um, the way that I like to think of it is, is this. Um, someone knocks on your door. Here in Canada, I'm still learning the ins and outs of how all this works, but we, I understand, are a commonwealth, yes? So uh, in the U.S., we got rid of the queen and king years ago. Here, that's still a thing. I'm learning. But regardless, 
someone might knock on your door someday, and they might say, hey, greetings. I am here in the name of the king. I am here in the name of the crown. Okay, well, if they came in such a manner, I would understand very quickly that this isn't like my neighbor wanting to borrow a cup of sugar. I understand that this person is not there on their own behalf. They are here knocking on my door, perhaps coming with a request of me on the behalf of someone else. Namely, they're coming on behalf of the king, the, the, the crown. I would understand that. When Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, what he's saying is, if you're serving my mission, if you are serving my mission and my goals and not your own, but you are serving what I want you to do, then you can pray for anything and it will be done for you. That is what he's saying. And even that, as I understood, even that seemed to me like a very big pill to swallow. Whatever you ask in my name, you shall have. But it really seems to me that repeating himself six times is Jesus telling us, this is a pill you need to swallow. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. I know your unbelieving ways. I know that I tell you my word, and you say, yeah, but, yeah, but. It really can't be like that, but. But Jesus says, hear this. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, if you're driven by my word, you can ask whatever you wish. Oh. I suppose I should probably say a little bit. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. In order to ask in his name, in order to ask on behalf of his mission, you really have to understand what his mission is because it might not be what you think it is. His first priorities in, in, in his mission, the disciples were often wrong about what Jesus' priorities were. Isn't that the case? So it's really easy to be like, I'm going to ask for this thing. I'm sure God wants this, but maybe he has a higher priority. What I'm trying to say is, if you want to tap into this promise of ask and receive, ask and receive, ask and receive, you need to know the scriptures. If, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, as in if you have come to understand my heart, if you have come to understand my mission, well, then you're going to have a life of asking and receiving. What else? What does this mean? As in, what are we talking about specifically? What are we talking about specifically, like ask and receive? It means a lot of things, a lot of things. But let me share just first, um, I'll, I'll come back to just my story a little bit. But first, if I could just say some of the things that this means in the, the practical sense. Before coming across these scriptures, I would pray, of course I would pray. I hope if you're a Christian, I hope that you pray. But I would pray all things really in the same way. As in, dear Lord, um, you know, try to thank God and stuff like that. But when it comes down to the requests, when it comes down to asking... 
I, whatever it is I was asking for, whether it was this or it was that, I would ask in the same way. We're kind of like, Lord, this is my request. You can do with it as you see fit. I hope you grant it. But who am I to know, <laughs> right? Okay? I mean, you're God, I'm not. Seems like, it seems like a, a, a good posture to be like, Lord, I, I mean, and there are times when you have to do exactly this. Uh, do not be anxious in anything but in everything by prayer and petition. Present your request to God, you know, and the peace of God will guard your heart. There are many times where you have a desire and you just present it to God. Here you go. Um, you can do, Lord, with this as you will. I have no idea if you're going to answer my prayer or not. I hope you will. That is often how I prayed. But here, six times, Jesus is saying, sometimes that's not how you should pray. There are some times that we need to pray with confidence that he will indeed give us what we ask. Jesus wants, sometimes he says, whatever you, whatever you pray for, believe that you've received and it'll be yours. And you have to link that with what he said right here. As in, when you're asking something, and you know that it's God's will because he's told us that it's his will in the scriptures. He doesn't want you asking as if you're not going to get it. He wants you asking with these promises in mind. And let me tell you, this kind of faith asking changes everything. Everything. The way that this plays out, and those who hang out with me might think that I'm a bit of a broken record because a lot of the times when I pray, I say the same things. What do I pray for the most? Perhaps wisdom. And Jesus said, if anyone, uh, the scriptures say in, in James, if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all without finding fault. That's one of those things where he wants us asking for wisdom. And we know it's according to his will. If we ask for wisdom, do we have to ask in the sense of like, well, I hope I get it. I hope he gives me wisdom. Or can we say, Lord, I need wisdom, and I'm going to wait confidently because I know you're going to give it because your word says that you will. I mean, that's kind of a, an example, praying for wisdom. Pray for that a lot. Uh, praying for direction, which is a little different than wisdom. Uh, wisdom is, 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 is understanding so you can make wise choices, and you have to do that often in life. You certainly have to do that in ministry. Direction is a little more like, Lord, I need your spirit to guide me. Uh, I'm going to come up here, Lord, and I'm going to try to talk on your behalf, and I can have all the wisdom in the world. I can come up with ideas of what I'm going to talk about, but once I'm up here, I need your spirit to guide me because... It might not turn out the way that I think, or maybe I need to say something that I didn't plan. There's an idea of, like, you just need the Holy Spirit to guide you. And this isn't just for people that find themselves preaching. This is just in life in general. Like, Lord, I'm going to work today. I want to live as your servant. I need your Spirit to guide me, to give me direction, to lead me into the conversations that I should have. Wisdom and direction to know when I should close my mouth. Wisdom and direction and courage to know when I should open my mouth on your behalf. Lord, I need your spirit to guide me. And when you ask for his spirit to guide you, is that something that you should ask for? Like, well, I hope he does. Or is that something you should ask for with the confidence of the God who said, whatever you ask in my name, you shall have. This is what I'm trying to say. It changes the way first. It changed my life. It changed the way that I pray. Because there are many times I'm asking for something that I know is in line with God's will. I know it's in line with God's heart. And so I ask it in the way, sometimes I will honestly say this when I'm feeling like kind of weak in myself. And you might laugh. Sometimes I'll say, Lord, I need you to do this. I need you to give me direction. I need you to give me wisdom. And if you don't, you're a liar. 
Like, I'll say that. And maybe that sounds like kind of like uh, improper, but it's really just me saying like, Lord, your word says that you're going to do it. Right now, I, I feel like I, I hardly have a mustard seed of faith. Right now, I'm feeling very weak, but I need you to do this because otherwise you're a liar. And we both know you're not a liar. And you know what? He shows himself to be faithful. He shows himself to not be a liar. Um, praying for wisdom, praying for direction. But there's more. There's more. Sometimes when you're working in his name, and all of us have the opportunity to work in his name, to live in his name, sometimes you actually need things, okay? As in resources or as in things to happen. You need specific things to happen sometimes. Or maybe you don't need it. Maybe you just want it. I understand I'm challenging some of you, but what did Jesus say? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask for whatever you need? No, that's not what he said. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish. I know some of you are hearing that and you're like, no, 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 no. Take it up with the Lord because he's the one that said it. Isn't that the case? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. Now, this does require a little bit of introspection because sometimes you want something, but naturally you have to ask yourself, am I asking in his name for his purposes or in my heart of hearts am I asking for my own purposes? Am I asking selfishly? for perhaps my own namesake, my own glory, my own um, desires, or am I asking for the sake of the mission? And for this reason, when you understand these promises, what happens is your prayer life becomes more intimate because coming to the Lord is not only about asking for what you want. It's about allowing his penetrating light of truth to look into your heart. And it's kind of like, Lord, examine me. Here's the something I want. You know what, Lord? I think that it's of you, but, but see my heart and know, Lord. Anything that's not of you, take it away. Lord, but if it is of you, let me ask and receive. So sometimes it means asking for things, asking for resources. Let me just return to my story a little bit. I came across these passages, and I was struck with the realization that I needed to change the way that I prayed. I need to start praying with confidence for the things that God has promised for the things uh, along the line of his heart. And I can tell you, things began to change after quite literally years of feeling like a failure and having everything that I tried to do fail. Um, a season began where anyone who was looking at my life would tell you that it was marked by ask and receive. And I don't say that to exalt myself. I say that to bear witness to the God who is faithful. Um, some leaders, some church leaders I met, and unlike my pastor at the time, they said, I think you do have a calling from God, and we want to give you an internship and we want to prepare you for church planting. It wasn't that long at all after that. They said, we think you're ready for church planting. First, we really want to see you raise a lot of money, like something to the tune of like a quarter million dollars pledged. It's super hard. And very, very quickly, we had a quarter of a million dollars pledged from uh, people, from individuals. 
And it wasn't just empty pledges. It was pledged and received. And so then we were starting a church. This all happened very, very quickly. We were starting a church, and we had a bunch of money pledged for this church. We had a dream for years. We put our hands on a certain building. I've told you this story before, but just sit through it. You're going to hear it again. For years, we put our hands on a building that was a music venue. It was an old movie theater converted to a music venue. Um, it was right downtown. It would be the perfect place to rent out for our Sunday services because we're trying to connect with non-churchy people. And so let's meet in a bar. It would be perfect. We had a deal with these fellows, the people who own the bar. We had a deal with them that we were going to rent out their music venue on Sunday mornings. We were going to pay them. A lot of our people would probably stick around for lunch once they opened their restaurant afterwards. It was a perfect deal. Everyone was going to win. They put it on the front page of the newspaper because that is news, church meeting in a bar. Um, some people started to talk. Not everyone thought it was a great idea. Um, do you, you know, there was a, a guy who, now we're friends. Maybe he listens to my sermons from time to time. Dino, if you're out there, I love you, man. Um, there's this blogger by the name of Dino. Uh, he he uh, tweeted, uh, an evangelical church meeting at the Fillmore, is that really what you want from your entertainment? And the owners of the Fillmore, Fillmore, just like a few weeks before our very first Sunday service, called me in and they said, we're concerned about how associating with the church is affecting our image as a bar. Just, yeah, I'm glad you laughed. Let that, just feel that irony a little bit, okay? In this world, you do have to be careful about who you associate with. And um, actually, that's something that maybe we should just pause and consider. Christians don't always have a good name. Okay? Uh, Christians aren't always known for their love and their humility. Sometimes Christians are known for their political discourse. Sometimes Christians are known for self-righteous posturing. Sometimes Christians are known for hypocrisy. Well, let it be what it will be. Um, but it's not what we want. It's not who we are. Well, this particular uh, bar owner, I would say, had uh, seemingly less pure intentions for not wanting us there. He told me that in our establishment, it's not uncommon. I'll never forget it. He said in our establishment, it's not uncommon for a man to come in here with his girlfriend while his wife is at home. And we have to be careful about the image that we're putting across. In other words, if we're known as the Christian bar, we could lose the business of people who... Well, you heard what I said. And that was so confusing to me because ask and receive, ask and receive. I've been living this. I've been seeing it. And this specific spot is what we were asking for. We were asking to rent this specific spot. But they said no. And uh, we had to find another spot. Brand new church. Less than a year later, the owners of the Fillmore, this is how I tell the story because this is what I believe. Um, a promise that goes way back to the very beginning of the Bible and 
finds its way all through the Bible. The promise is this. Um, I'm going to bless those who bless you, and whoever dishonors you I will curse. And the way that I think of it is, uh, that's when the Lord started cursing their business. You don't hear about bars going out of business in Wisconsin, okay? Let me tell you. You do not hear about bars going out of business in Wisconsin because it doesn't happen. But less than a year later, they're contacting us and saying, do you want to buy the business? And the Lord provided the means for us to buy the business at less than a third of the money that was put in to renovating this business. They put a lot of money into renovating this music venue, and we bought it for a third of what they put into it. Okay? Uh, our prayer was to rent it. The Lord did above and beyond, and now we're moving in. Now we're moving in. This is like very shortly after I discovered John 14 through 16, okay? We are moving in. We're purchasing this downtown music venue, and the story continues. It wasn't that long after that where I'm driving through a neighboring town, Stevens Point, thinking we should plant the church here, and I'll never forget, I know exactly where I was. I was driving through the city, I was driving through the city, and I thought we should plant a church here, and then the following thought is, you are really busy in life, okay? How are you going to do that? And then the following thought after that was, same logic that brought us this far, far you know, ask and receive. That seems to have worked in the past, right? So I, I, remember, I remember praying for another church in Stevens Point. Boom, connected with an old friend, uh, who was in a place that he, he had been experiencing that waiting on God, waiting on God. And he's like, let's do it. I wasn't going to tell all this story, but I have to. It's just too good. Um, there was this building. Uh, it was a church building, a historic church building in Stevens Point, Wisconsin. And they put it for sale because a lot of churches are dying, if you haven't heard, if you haven't noticed churches are dying. They put their old historic church building for sale. Uh, my friend in Stevens Point, he had a friend of a friend. He knew someone that knew someone who was part of this small group of remaining people that were part of this church. And he's like, all right, I made a meeting with them. And at this point, I was honestly like, all right, <laughs> let's go have a meeting. And I, I, I didn't really even know what we were doing. And then the morning of the meeting, he calls me and he says, I'm sick, so I can't go. And I'm thinking, I'll go, but I still don't know what we're doing here. <laughs> uh, and I remember very clearly, I was in the shower getting ready, and I thought, maybe I should just ask them to give us the building. And maybe that's the Holy Spirit. And I went, and I thought to myself, I am going to, uh, I'm going to go here. I'm going to find a small group of, uh, of uh, nice elderly Christians. And uh, that's exactly what happened. And uh, I wore long sleeves because I wasn't ready to fully come out. <laughs> Uh, but I met with them and I just shared my story of what the Lord had done in Wausau, of how I myself went from someone who thought Christianity was the worst to becoming someone who discovered that Christianity, Jesus, is alive. I shared my own story, shared the story of everything God did in Wausau, 
And then I remember saying, here's where you come in. The building that you have, um, this church, this, this, it was a historic Baptist church that had dwindled down to four members. I said, uh, I would like you to give us your building and any people that are here and any money that you might have. <laughs> That's what I said word for word. I must have been feeling the boldness of the Holy Spirit. And they gave us their building, they gave us themselves, and they gave us all of their money. That was in Stephen's point. A few years later, just north of Wausau, town called Merrill. Same stuff. Okay? Connected with someone. The Lord was feeling a stirring in his life. Not that long after that at all. Uh, a building, a youth center, downtown Merrill. The person who owned it gave it to us. Fully paid off. Um, and these are just stories of Things, as in buildings, are, are things, resources, money, things. Very helpful for ministry sometimes, but nevertheless, things. And I want you to hear that, and I want you to be encouraged, and I want you to know that when Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask for whatever you wish, I want you to ask in faith. I want you to be allowing the Spirit to penetrate your own hearts and say, Lord, am I asking this for your mission, or am I asking this for, 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 for your glory. By the way, just a quick disclaimer. If you've not joined his mission, none of this applies to you right now. I want it to apply to you, but what I'm saying is if you're not living for his purposes, then this isn't going to work. It's not a... a it's not a tactic to get what you want. Um, instead, it's an invitation to join his mission. And you know my friend who last week said, how does someone experience God? Well, there's a lot of ways to answer that question. But here's a big one. Ask and receive. This is what Jesus said. I read it in John chapter 16. Ask and receive that your joy may be full. Ask and receive that your joy may be full. There is a joy that comes when you ask for something, and it's like, wow, it happened just like I asked. I asked with confidence and according to his word. I, it might not have been a lot of confidence. Maybe it was just a tiny little mustard seed of confidence because that's often all that it is. It's like I go to Lord, and I feel like, Lord, 99% of me is doubting. 99% of me is weak. But there's a little speck that looks to your word, and I'm coming to you with that little speck, and I'm saying, God, if you're not a liar, I need you to do this for your glory, for your namesake. And then it happens, and then it happens, and your heart is just amazed. God is real. God is alive. God is with us. That's how you experience God. And if you've never done that, I invite you to hear these promises. Ask and receive, ask and receive, ask and receive. I invite you and I even, I even dare you to put this into practice. 
But once more, thus far, I've been talking primarily, well, wisdom, that's, that's super important, direction, very important, resources, things, all that is great. But there is something more, something greater, something else that I think God wants us asking for even more when it comes to in his name. Um, so John chapter 14, John chapter 16, like I said, it's the farewell discourse. And very, uh, he repeats a bunch of times, ask and receive, ask and receive, ask and receive, ask and receive. So that's clearly one of the themes, one of the big ideas of the sermon. Um, but there's something else that kind of carries the sermon point that he brings up in different ways um, in these three chapters. Um, I want to read, go back to the beginning of the final discourse, John chapter 14, and read verse 16 to 20. And he says, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Okay, now I'm going to talk about experiencing God. How does someone experience God? And here is something. Here, Lord, help me, because I fear that what I'm talking about here is more wonderful than I can communicate without the help of the Spirit. Jesus is saying, and he says this in the beginning of John 14, he says this at the end of the discourse in different ways, I am going to come to you. Listen, listen. He says, I'm going to leave, but I am going to come to you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. And he says it in different ways, and what he's talking about is the promise of the giving of the Holy Spirit, which was our topic of conversation last week, if you recall, the pouring out of the Spirit. You receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. The giving of the Holy Spirit, and in the giving of the Holy Spirit, he says, you will see me. You will see me. The Christianity that we profess is not only a religion of traditions and ideas and dogmas. It's an experience with the living God. You will see me. You will see me. Beloved. Oh, God, do it among us. Something that's been on my mind very much and have you've heard come out of my lips very much is the idea, the concept of revival. Revival. That word means different things to different people. But when I say revival, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the church awaking to seeing Jesus. The church that perhaps was hobbling along with traditions and ideas and religion is now given an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and with that, an outpouring of sight. Of sight. The spirit of truth. What happens in times of revival and what happens when the Holy Spirit is given with power is theology that we have in our head begins to be experienced as seen reality. Jesus said it here. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. 
as in on that day, the unity, and this is the part where it's more marvelous than I can speak apart from the Holy Spirit's help, the union that we have with Christ, being one with him, him being one with us, as I am in the Father and the Father is in me, so you will be in me, I will be in you. You will be joining into this Trinitarian oneness, and on that day, you will know it. You will see it. You'll experience it. The whole book of John has been about spiritual sight. This is the hope that he has for us. I remember, I remember being a stay-at-home dad, reading John 14, 15, and 16. I very much specifically remember getting on my knees, praying with what I think was a mustard seed of faith for another revival, like the ones we read of in old. When you read about the Great Awakening, oh, read about the Great Awakening. And you'll understand this is something that happens in history. Or go back and, and you recall in uh, uh, late May, I believe it was, I told you the story of the Jesus People revival. Where among hippies, among hippies in the 60s, God poured out his spirit and the world was changed. Thousands upon thousands of, of hippies. Who would expect a hippie to turn to the Lord and sing the praises of Jesus? Not many people. And not only did it change the world for the hippies, it changed the church. Go back and listen to that sermon. It wasn't that long ago. I hear they're making a movie about it, actually. So uh, maybe we'll, we'll play that here sometime. But you read about the revivals of old, and you understand that this thing I'm talking about happens. Um, so... Uh, uh, um, one of the key figures of the Great Awakening, and the, the Great Awakening happened in the early 1700s. I realize I'm well over my time, but we're, we're going we're gonna to slim down the rest of the time. We're going to do Q&A a little different this week where we're not actually going to have a longer Q&A. You'll see how we'll do that. But uh, I'm almost done, I promise. But you're just going to have to sit there because I, I got a little more to say. Uh, faithful narrative, uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, one of the key figures of the First Great Awakening, early 1700s. Um, something began to happen in Northampton in, in the colonies. In the little church that he was leading in a little community, something began to happen. And his church of 300 people doubled in size to 600. And this was like almost the whole town. And what was even more bizarre, and this is where it gets really weird, he started talking to his pastor friends in neighboring communities, and the same thing was happening there. And he, he started to document it. And the name of, uh, of what he wrote down, this is the title of his book. They used to name books differently back then, because this is the name of the book. A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God in the Conversion of Many Hundred Souls in, in Northampton and the Neighboring Towns and Villages. And he said he knows of 32 towns where the same thing was occurring. And this is known as the Great Awakening because it spread and it changed the landscape. Um, in, in this, this is one thing he says. He says, as he's noticing what's happening, he says, religion became everybody's chief engagement. The town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It never was so full of love, nor so full of joy as it was then there were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. In almost every house. like Human nature was the same then as it was now. Human nature doesn't want God. 
Okay, I hope you figured that out. Human nature doesn't want a real personal relationship with God. They're okay with like doing religion in the traditional way, but apart from God working in our spirit, we don't really want him in our heart. But during times of revival, things change. And suddenly there are people that are understanding the goodness of God and inviting him into their lives. And this has happened throughout history in different times. And I remember reading John 14 through 16 and getting on my knees as a stay-at-home dad and asking for another great awakening like we had in times of old that I read about. And I tell you, it's that mustard seed of faith that I, I still hold on to. And this is why I often talk the way that I do. Um, okay, like I said, um, we're not going to have Q&A in the normal way today. I do have a question that came in the text line last week. I'm actually going to read and I'm going to answer. Um, but if you actually have kids, K through 4, now would be the time to go and get uh, your children. Um, so, um, okay. First, 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 first. Before I get to the, the question that came in through the Q&A. Um, Jonathan Edwards, going back to him for a second. I feel like he's got a little bit, not like a bad rap, but kind of like often when people think of Jonathan Edwards, they think of his most famous sermon, which was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And God, of course, used that. Um, but that actually wasn't the sermon that he said was the most influential when it came to bringing forth revival. Um, the sermon he said that brought forth revival the most was a sermon called Justification by Faith Alone. And it was a sermon on Romans 4, verse 5, I think it is. It says, However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. And that's uh, some of those words, justification, and um, some of those might be words you might be unfamiliar with. So I'm going to break this down as simple as possible, what Jesus uh, what the scriptures say and, and what Jonathan Edwards preached that he said brought forth revival. Justification by faith alone. Here's the thing that religion sometimes misses. And this is the truth that revival, I believe, is always built upon. Salvation, a relationship with God, is 100% a gift that anyone can have. All of your sins wiped away forever. You can have that. Anyone can have it. And it's by faith alone, meaning it's simply receiving this gift. It's never about... Um, people, religion always wants to add things. Religion always wants to say, yes, but... Yes, but you have to do this. Yes, but you have to do that. And the gospel is always quenched when someone tries to say, yes, but. Um, the salvation that we have is 100% a gift, and anyone who wants it can have it. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is, for it is with your mouth that you confess and are justified. And it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Okay. All right. All right. So mm, we're going to do our Q&A part really quick because I've talked for a really long time. But like I say, it's my favorite portion of scripture. You got to give me a break, right? I'm going to talk about my favorite portion of scripture. I get a little extra time. 
Okay. Um, this is a question that came in through the text line last week, and this is the only question we're going to do for, for Q&A this week. Um, the question came in and it said, concerning revival, what safeguards do you have in place so that we do not become like Toronto where people were barking like dogs? That we do not see in the scriptures. Okay, a little backdrop, a little, little backstory. Some of you have no idea what this question is all about, what they're getting at. Um, uh, there was uh, something that happened in Toronto that is known as the Toronto Blessing. And depending on who you ask, some people will say that it was a real revival from God, and other people will say that it was not. Um, I was not in Toronto. I don't, to be totally honest, I haven't really studied of the things that took place or what came after the, the, the Toronto blessing. But apparently, in Toronto, during this outpouring of the Spirit, or depending on, again, who you ask, the so-called outpouring of the Spirit, some very weird things happened, and some things that we would all hopefully agree are not uh, good or helpful or orderly or of God, such as people barking like dogs. That is not uh, something that I can say definitively that the Holy Spirit is uh, doing in our midst. And I know that from reading the scriptures. First uh, Corinthians talks good about stuff like that. Um, and so the reason why I bring it up, the reason why it's a good question, the reason I bring it up is me saying revival, me speaking of revival, some people are more aware than others about some things that perhaps have happened that are a bit odd, often linked with the idea of revival. And some people might get nervous saying, is that what you're advocating? Is that what we're getting into? Is that what we're going to become, and uh, very interestingly, I came across, reading Jonathan Edwards, uh, I came across this, I was reading him this week, and this is something I came across that Jonathan Edwards said. He said, the weakness of human nature has always appeared in times of great revival of religion by a disposition to run to extremes and to get into confusion, and especially in these three things, enthusiasm, superstition, and intemperate zeal. So appeared in the time of the Reformation very remarkably, and even in the days of the apostles. Many, as ecclesiastical history informs us, fell off into the most wild enthusiasm and extravagant notions of spirituality. It surely cannot be wondered at by considerate persons when multitudes all over the land have their affections greatly moved that great numbers should run into many errors and mistakes with respect to their duty and consequently into many practices that are imprudent and irregular. Okay, to break it down, it's very interesting to me. People talk about what happened in Toronto, you know, just a few decades ago as how can that happen? If there was really an outpouring of the Spirit, how can there stuff like that be happening? And here, you go back three centuries, uh, Jonathan Edwards is saying that those sorts of things happen during revival. And he's talking about revivals that even happened before him. He's saying some people, when the Spirit of God is so moving greatly, you have people with just normal natures who are overcome, and sometimes people do things that are not good. They're not in, they're, they're not in line with, uh, you know, prudence. And very interestingly, you actually go way back to the book of 1 Corinthians, Corinthians, and there's a church that was certainly experiencing uh, the gifts and the power of the Spirit and there was a lot of weird stuff going on, things that were not good, actually. There were things that were, there, uh, uh, sometimes it sounds like, um, uh, I, I, you know, I'm not going to get into it. Read 1 Corinthians. There's a bunch of stuff that happened, 1 Corinthians, where Paul is like, you guys need to stop doing this. If, a, if, a, if an unbeliever walks in on your midst, they're going to think you're all out of your minds. He's going to say, this isn't good, this isn't helpful. But you know what he doesn't say? 
He doesn't say this is not the work of the Spirit. In fact, he begins his letter by saying, I'm so thankful that the Spirit of God has just enriched you with gifts. So what I'm trying to say is we should not fear revival. What safeguards do we have in place so that people don't bark like dogs? Don't bark like dogs, okay? That, that's all. Don't do it. But if things happen, if God pours out his Spirit, if God pours out his Spirit and things do get a little odd, we'll deal with it. But that's not a reason to fear revival.